goes back to his home planet, whatever. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> What's that uh, joke from The Simpsons? Like, Snowball yeah. went back to his home planet. Snowball. Uh, it was no, Santa's little helper goes back to his home planet. Nope, not Santa. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Just keep going. Anyway, Fido goes no, back to his home planet. It's, no, Fido. It's, it's the goddamn, even I barely watch any Simpsons, and I know it's the um, it's the new, like, the red little character that was added. It was, um, God, I'm going to look this up. The point I was trying to make. Um, Are we talking about Family Guy here? No. no we're talking about the Simpsons. Oh. Simpsons, okay. Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. On this week's episode of Film Tank, we discuss the 1954 version of A Star is Born, directed by George Cukor and starring Judy Garland and James Mason. How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? I don't know, but some people without brains do an awful lot of talking. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hello there again, everybody, and welcome back into Film Tank. This is episode 72, and I am Alex Diekman, along with my usual co-hosts, Nick Cheney and Toussaint Egan. Swanee, how I love ya. That was me singing Swanee River. That was lovely. Thank you so much. Hi. Thank you for that. No, just a minute. Thank you for that, Nick, because <laughs> you that, are was, welcome. that was something that I never thought we would get quite to that level, and mm. we just got it. We just did. It only took 72 episodes. So, Well, you know, that's, that's what happens when we're going to talk about a musical. Making miracles happen, baby. We also, Jason Egan is here. Hi, guys. Unfortunately. Oh, whatever. Oh. Bye. So, I just wanted to put the claws out already. Wow. Right. Oh, wow. Feisty. <laughs> uh, on today's episode, we are talking about the 1954 classic film, A Star is Born, mm -hmm. which is definitely a musical drama hybrid <laughs> film. But what does Neil deGrasse Tyson have to say about whether stars can actually be born or not? <laughs> That's that's my question. I think Toussaint is like more befuddled now <laughs> than when I brought up the comment last week about Ghost in the Shell being an international film. <laughs> you just, now you just reminded me about that. And I'm yeah. just like, I'm so in my feelings right now. Can we just move on to the next thing? All Lives Matter, man. Oh my so god. <laughs> Shut up. Anyway. So anyways... Uh, the 1954 version of A Star is Born that stars Judy Garland and James Mason uh, is one of Nick's favorite films of all time, in addition you. to be one of his favorite musicals of all time. You've never done a musical on this podcast. Nope. Odds are, especially from our discussion last week with Sam, uh, we likely will be doing another one sometime. And looking at the schedule of upcoming movies, September looks like a good time for that to yeah, me. Yeah, I'd say let's do it. Right, and I think there's a good chance for it. But the first one we're going to talk about, which is A Star is Born, we'll hit on in just a little bit. But first, going to talk about a trailer that was released just today on the day of this recording, which is the 13th of July. 
And that is the new Damien Chazelle film, La La Land, which this is really the first footage we've gotten. We've seen a couple mm-hmm. photos here and there, mm. but this is the first moving footage with music and Ryan Gosling singing, kind of, and interesting imagery and dancing into stars and into fake sets and colors. And, and John Legend. Yeah. It, and again, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling, I know we knew that they were going to be here, but they just seem to be the couple that always gets put together in these movies when they're playing romantic couples. They are end up together. So Hollywood just wants it to happen, man. I got to tell you, this movie was kind of on my radar, but not really. And after seeing uh, the trailer, I absolutely am 100% ready to go see this tomorrow. I'm I'm way into seeing this. It has seems like it is going to have the kind of imagery that I love to see in films. Damien Chazelle, I know, has the potential to be a fantastic filmmaker. Made one really good one. Doesn't mean he'll ever make another good movie again. But I know the potential's there. And... I like Ryan Gosling. I like Emma Stone. Uh, and I think this movie's got a chance to be really good. So I can't wait to go see it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I basically just learned about this film. <laughs> uh, I watched the trailer uh, before we, we started recording. And I think that it looks pretty good. I, I'm, I'm I'm more of a surface detail person. And like the intricacies and like part of like mise-en-scene and like lighting and just like music and font, whatever. Cause I'm, I'm that kind of guy that likes title sequences. And I thought it's a really well constructed trailer and it looks interesting. And basically the main pull for me is, is not even Ryan Gosling, <coughs> not even Emma Stone, not even the little cameo that I mentioned about uh, John Legend. Cause I was surprised to see him crop up in there. Not really cameo. He's supposed to be a character. He right? is. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Um, I'm really just excited for this because this is from the same guy who did whiplash and whiplash is, one of our earliest episodes and one of the best films I've seen in recent memory. So, yeah. Yeah. It's got potential as I, as yeah. I just mentioned. Uh, that doesn't mean it's going to be good. I just, I'm, I'm way on board. Nick, I, kn- I know you were probably out of all of us, the most excited for this film before we saw any footage. How I do know. you feel now? Well, and that's the thing is that it's one of those, whenever we had the conversations about what we're both looking forward to, I'd always forget to mention it because mm. nobody talks about it. So yeah. I just forget it existed. <laughs> but every time I read about it, I'd be like, Oh God, that is a thing that is happening. And I am so excited because yeah, you have Damien Chazelle, uh, making a the first original Hollywood musical in quite some years. I mean, I haven't, I can't remember the last one that wasn't based on a property. Uh, so I'm I'm, 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 ch- I'm I'm not sure how exactly original it was. Uh, the the Daniel Day Lewis one called Nine from like That's seven years ago, based on another. I, I forget. See, what see it, there you go. But like, I, like, I think it is at least. Yeah. But yes. Um, so I, I was very excited, and, and what, I, what what stuck to me in my head the most about wanting to see this property was, like, the final 15 minutes of Whiplash. I mean, the editing there. I mean, he is a man, Damien Chazelle, who knows how to edit, not around music, but through it and with it. And for that alone, I was just – could not wait to see – even if I just didn't see a trailer – now that I've seen a teaser uh, for it, I'm a little more skeptical okay. um, that it just might not be for me because I I agree that it looks beautiful. Uh, like, and obviously, I actually like Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone and pretty much everybody that's announced. And I think Damien Chazelle won't necessarily make a bad movie. Um, but the teaser, it's like it just did the opposite of what I wanted it to do. It put me to sleep and not mm. in that dreamlike like. 
this is so dreamy, but just kind of like, okay. What's like, happening on the screen? Yeah, like it just it just failed to leap off the screen for me. I will say that I feel like the musical genre is a really hard genre to nail down in a 80-second <laughs> teaser trailer. And I agree, but then I think of like even bad musicals like Les Mis had Anne Hathaway doing I Dreamed a Dream for, you know, a good 60 seconds. And but, like, that almost got me to see that movie. But, but, <laughs> then, but, but, the but then the reviews came out. But, but the reason why, like, that scene is even in there is because that song is so iconic to no, that, that specific property. But I'm just saying, like, I, like, as far as you can parse this down to a very simple... You show me, you know, 30 seconds of a Gene Kelly sequence, and I'll probably... I'm on board, whatever. But... What I saw here did not give me any sense, in a, and I mean that in a good way, not that because it looks so mysterious, but give me any sense of what kind of musical Damien Chazelle has created here. And that, and, and, and it was overshadowed by the fact that I couldn't really stand Ryan Gosling trying to sing. Yeah, that was not good. And that, that was the basis of the whole teaser. So then yeah. I'm like, if this is what we're pulling to draw people in. In fact, I believe the, the poster that is out now for it is like advertising that this has his song in, in, in this movie. Well, he has a band. That's fine. And then here's, I'll say this much. <laughs> it, doesn't make, it doesn't make him a good singer. I know. It's yeah. like, you, and like, I don't even think he was so bad, but yeah. like he like wasn't good. And I will say this. There were moments in the teaser, and this is why I'm ultimately still excited to see it, even mm-hmm. though the, tra- the teaser lowered my expectations, is that there were a lot of moments in the teaser where I could see him like, oh, I want to see that song because I can tell when they'd cut to this, like we see a, a moment of like Emma Stone and three other girls in the street almost dancing as they're walking home or whatever. Like, I'm like I can tell that that's got to be a song and whatnot. And like, I just wanted to see those moments instead of having to uh, listen to Ryan Gosling. Well, they try to make a, a some sort of true line throughout the entire trailer, which makes kind of sense. Yeah. I, I mean, there are a lot of kind of beautiful shots here that are honestly probably the best shots in the movie that are thrown into this trailer to try to catch people's eyes. And for me, it, it did the job of what it's trying right. to do. But it, 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 I think for me, the, the meshing between reality and what's like magical and that kind of thing. Magical seemed, realism. Yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's going to be coming in this film in quite a few different forms. And that's something that I'm, I'm very interested in. So, <laughs> We'll see. For for me, it looks great. I think it looks fabulous. I'm it, very excited to see it yeah. more than like many, if not most, of movies that are going to come out this year. <laughs> I, I just the, I want to see another trailer. Yeah. Put it that way. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. La La Land. I think uh, there's a chance we'll be talking about it sometime later this year. La 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 La. Nice. So moving on to our main review today, it is talking about the musical film. Star um, Born. It is. We have an email. Oh, sorry. Let's, no, no, no. Let, I was let's... just going to say, would you like, uh, should we read that because it's about a star is born? Okay. Like, should we get that to start the conversation? Yes, sure. Please. Why don't Why don't we? Who Who is it? Who's it from? It's from Caroline Decker. Ah, our friend from Canada, our friend right? Of the, friend of the show from Canada. Hello nice. there. Let's see here. Um, would you like to read it or would you like me to read it? That is up to you. I, I don't mind reading it, but. You can read it as well. I'll read it. Okay. I'm excited. Sounds good. Because I love this movie. Good. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so this email comes from friend of a show, Caroline Decker. Uh, so she says, hey, Film Tank folks. 
<laughs> First and foremost, I must apologize for being super delinquent and not writing much as of late. Oh, that's okay. I'm still a huge fan of your show and hope you keep going for a long time to come. We need to get to that special 100th episode where you finally talk about Predator. <laughs> yes! When I heard you would be featuring A Star is Born this week, I had to participate. This is one of my all-time favorite musicals. When I heard you would be featuring A Star is Born this week, I had to participate. This is one of my all-time favorite musicals. There is something hauntingly beautiful about the film, and every time I watch it, I'm immediately struck by how bold the subject matter is, both by the era it was made and by today's standards. While this truly is a story about so many things, like the price of fame, the complexities of relationships, the strength of determination, and so on and so forth, I often fixate on one in particular, the fickle line between selflessness and selfishness. If you've seen the movie, I reckon you know precisely in what direction I am presently heading. Norman's decision to end his own life for the sake of Esther's career is at a best a case of extremely sad irony and, at worst, a severely cruel life sentence. In the case of the former, what was intended as a genuinely selfless act, meant to free the metaphorical shackles his disease held over the woman he loved, actually ended up permanently securing those shackles in place. In the case of the latter, an old man with a bruised ego and a wavering sense of loyalty made the conscious decision to end his own suffering and effectively immortalizing his memory, thereby causing his wives to fade into obscurity. Both options seem pretty dire, don't they? I suppose the one you opt for is mostly dependent on whether or not you truly believe Esther and Norman love each other. Maybe I'm a closet sentimentalist, but I prefer to interpret their story with the understanding that they did. Perhaps their love changed over time, but in the beginning, it was real and true. In this sense, I can only conclude the film isn't actually a musical. Instead, it is a great tragedy, practically Shakespearean in the turmoil, struggles, and obstacles the main characters face. After all, what is more tragic than the hopeless imperfection of humanity? I hope some of that made sense. Stay awesome. Cheerio, Caroline. None of that made any sense. Caroline, yeah. thank just, you so I'm just, much. Just that was such a well-written letter. I enjoyed that. Yeah. So thank that you very much wonderful. for emailing in. We always love to hear from Caroline and anybody who decides to email in to filmtankshow at gmail.com. So thank you yeah. again to Caroline. Mm-hmm. So, A Star is Born, which again stars Judy Garland and James Mason and was directed by George Kikor. There it is. Uh, is, is a film that was a remake for uh, first and foremost because it was originally not a musical at all right is is that as far as i'm concerned i never actually okay. saw it but that's what i hear there was a film that was then based on a book and then this is an adaptation of that previous film okay. and uh just the really simple tagline is about a film star who helps a young singer and actress find fame and even as age and alcoholism send his career on a downward spiral it's kind of weird, actually. Yes, a star is born. And in its splendor and deep emotional fire, in its shining beauty and wonderful heart, a new era in motion picture achievement is also born. You'll see it in the richness and magnificence so lavishly poured into every scene. You'll feel it in the countless moments of deep human understanding. You'll hear it in the rousing tempo of its great music. And you'll know it when you experience the joy and jubilation of Judy Garland as the star. And you'll never forget James Mason as Norman Maine, clinging desperately to the only real love he'd ever known. There's Jack Carson, Charles Bickford, all bringing inspired life to a story that only life itself could have inspired. You don't know what it's like to 
see somebody you love crumble away in front of your eyes, bit by bit, day by day. I, I hate myself because I failed too. You got it, just like you dreamed it. I've got more, so much more. It's a new world I see. A new world for me. This is a story of a little girl searching, searching, searching. For she knows somewhere is a someone who's a someone for her. This is a story. You want to have bells that'll ring. You want to have songs that'll sing. You want your sky of baby blue. You got to have me go with you. For it started many years ago. Princess Theater in Pocatello, So, obviously, this is uh, something that Nick really wanted to bring to the table. He loves this film and really wanted myself and Toussaint to see it and mm-hmm. to have a chance for all of us to talk about it. So, Nick, uh, why don't you obviously go first and, and talk both about your feelings on this film and and also just really, I, I don't want to say briefly, but kind of why you really love musicals. Because I know it is a genre that you have really come to to really just um love especially recently give us an overview of some of the genre essentials of musicals and how a star is born relates to those conventions of a musical whoa this is a lot so uh, let's tackle these one by one Mm -hmm. to answer what tucson just said i guess i'm no scholar but i would say that musicals are quite simply, you just have to have characters continually singing full-length songs. So it's like if you if you have a song about a rock band, but like we see the first thirty seconds of this, um, and then it cuts to the next scene, because and all we ever live with are the moments in between. Like that's not a musical. Green room. Yes, like that's that's not a, even though and now a funny thing about that is that there is a full length song in there because I think they play the full length of uh, yeah. Nazi punks fuck off but like I I think musical is kind of like some it's more of a a feeling like you you just know when you're watching one and like obviously there is a definition but they're I, almost universally defined by well I I wouldn't I'm no, I'm no scholar myself as as much as you are I'm I'm probably even yeah. less of a scholar on this but. My impression of them has sort of been that optimism is a um, is a unifying trait in some way that even though it, it's not like all um, 
all musicals are happy, such as West Side Story, which is literally a battle between like two gangs. Like, right. really, it's, it's more of which like which ends with death, which, which ends in death is yeah. like, but it's more of like an effusive, effusiveness and a a sort of lust for life that that kind of like defines it. I was going to say, there's certainly a mentality of like of I, I would even say optimism. I, I would almost point to something more like um, an exuberant uh, personality to right. these movies. Um, and yet they could be singing about the, the most cynical, like Little Shop of Horrors of the movie, about people stuck in a place that they can't get out of no matter how hard they try like, and having no upward mobility in their lives. But yet they sing these 50s doo-wop songs about this situation. So it's kind of like um, it doesn't matter how happy they look or you know how cheerful the, the melody is. It's always the lyrics that are more important and and the story itself. But in general, I mean, musicals really do span so many different times. I mean, you have the kind of musicals where characters break out into songs uh, in the face of reality, or you have something like A Star is Born, where people are only singing diegetic songs, where music is coming from some kind of source, whether it be a live band, or they, they put the radio on, or something like that. And then you look at something like Les Miserables, where the entire film is sung. There's yes. no lines of yep. dialogue at all. Yep, and some are obviously caught in between, and so on and so forth, and that's why, like, and that's, and that's the other thing is, like, some musicals are not even, like, like this one, because all the music is diegetic uh, in A Star Is Born, the the music, which I actually think brilliantly thematically ties into a lot of what's happening, are not meant to be that direct correlation to the character's thoughts. You know, they are not actually singing what they are thinking at that moment or, or wish they could say, you know. So, and I think a lot of people think of musicals in that way only. Like, characters have to be singing to move the plot forward because then why are we, you know. Um, so, yeah, there, I mean, there's just all different kinds. Uh, I love musicals. I I think I always have, um, like, <clears throat> but I, it took me a while to start watching a lot of the greats because for the longest time, I only loved musicals in the most idiosyncratic way, which is that like I loved musicals that existed with characters that I grew to love already. Mm-hmm. So like if it was like like the musical episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is my favorite television episode of all time, and part of I lo- and that the reason why I love that episode is because it's a musical episode, which I just love in general, but because it came in season six after six seasons of getting to know these characters, and then we literally have an episode where every character shares their deepest, darkest secret in a in their own song. So, in the majesty of song. There's yeah. actual character development, like like yeah. like almost culminative, accumulative uh, like character development in that particular episode. So it serves a purpose other than the novelty of it being a a musical. And like I think. Uh, the MTV animated show Daria even had mm-hmm. a, a musical episode as well. Yeah, uh, the the God God Damn It with yeah. the song with her father. Yeah, no, and look, look at um, <clears throat> most people. I wouldn't say most, but like pretty much everybody, I think, would describe South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut as a musical. Yeah, that it absolutely is. is, and yeah. it's one of the best musicals, uh, of film musicals of all time, in my opinion. Yeah, um, but yeah, no, I, I love it taking uh, pre-existing properties and doing that. Now that I'm older, because that's how I kind of grew up on them for the most part, mm-hmm. I've certainly gotten just back into regular just film musicals or whatever, and just the stylings of Gene Kelly, uh, Fred Astaire, uh, Bing Crosby when he's, you know, in his natural color, um, <laughs> and Judy Garland. Wow. Yeah. Well, that was a thing. Woo, yeah, it Lord. was a thing. You couldn't watch a, try to watch a Bing Crosby movie, and uh t- 
And if if he doesn't get have, into have blackface, paint. yeah, it is uh, White Christmas. Yeah, I was gonna say. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe that was just because of a name it was hey. in the contract or something. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. But, no, I mean, all these people are fantastic, <laughs> especially them going back and uh, and watching them all. And A Star is Born is one of the ones that I discovered just, I would say, recently within the last year or two when I finally have been getting really into the history of musicals. And um, I was drawn to it because our actual our friend of the show, Caroline Decker, told me that I should watch it because she knows that I love uh Things that don't always work out happily in the end. <laughs> and um, No, really? Yeah. And so I was like, okay, like how, how much could this really... And I genuinely was not expecting this movie, like as it is from start to finish. Um, so I guess I'll go into my thoughts about the movie. Please. Uh, A Star is Born is one of my all-time favorite films. It is quite literally the reason why I go to movies, like to go see movies, to watch movies. It is a movie. That is a bold statement. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I mean, that, I'm not contesting Allow me that. to be bold. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you have such a, a, a diverse, sorry to step aside, like, but you have such a diverse palette of films, like just like, I think maybe even last episode we were talking about uh, Abbas uh, Kiarostami and, and how like Close Up is one of your absolute favorite films. And to call like A Star is Born, like, yeah, nah. I'm saying that yeah. this is the like this is an example of why I go to see movies. Okay, you know? yeah. Like, when I was talking about Kiarostami, I was saying that was a formative film experience. Okay. You know, so I mean, it's all different. And if you, if you I'm being caught, hyperbolic, yeah, but still. Caught, just really quickly, if you haven't caught on by now, listening to this podcast, Nick has a very diverse sort of palette when it comes to movies, mm-hmm. and and it always catches me off guard no matter what. Maybe you do that on purpose sometimes. I'm not sure. No, he just likes a lot of shit. I know, <laughs> but but it's he'll he'll and I don't like a lot of other shit. Which is which is it's that's part of it that yeah. always throws me off because you'll go and uh, love this kind of movie, and then you'll go and love White House Down, and you'll love Spring Breakers, and and for different reasons, obviously. Yeah. But it's a uh, yeah, I, I can never get a great read on you on yeah. things. Because I just try to go into every movie and, uh, See and what happens. let it wash over me. <laughs> so continuing with A Star is Born. So Nick. it's A Star is Born, and what I mean by that, by that this is why I go see movies, is that this is a movie that's three hours long, because um, we all watch the original theatrical cut, uh, which in this day and age features the uh, still photographs for the excise scenes that were cut out after the original theatrical run, sadly, and makes no sense when you watch it because you're like, this is pretty important. Uh, In fact, uh, as I mentioned while you were watching the film, I actually think there was some more information in there that probably could have been given to the audience. Yep, yep. But this is a movie that quite literally has everything I want when I go see any kind of movie. Like, this is a musical, and I think the songs are great. Not that this is the best uh, score any musical has ever had, but I, these songs are fantastic. I listen to uh, Gotta Have Me Go With You, uh, Someone At Last, the, the Man Who Got Away. Like, these are some great musical uh, classics, in my opinion. Uh, but the fact that we, we have these songs and Judy Garland performing them, I mean, that's pretty much all you need. In the Liza Minnelli, yeah. nonetheless. <laughs> I was going to say. That was... was- that was such a head twist. Eerie. Yeah. 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 Um, and it, for that, um, it's, it's a funny movie. Like, I, I laugh quite a bit at so many things in this movie. And it's a it's extremely uh, sad movie. And tying all of that together, it's, it's a love story. So, like, you have, I would say, this 
four quadrant of the, of the cinema world, so to speak. I mean, I'm not saying that everything is here. No, no, nothing about this is a horror movie or is like it's not like at some point they become a western or whatever. But in general, the four emotional genres, which I think are musicals, uh, comedy, drama, and tragedy, so to speak, are, are all here and all present and, and all work with each other and not against each other. Um, and I think this movie is just brilliant. I think it's a wonderful celebration of why we go to see movies. And I think that's part of why I, I said that phrase is because this is a movie that totally dissects uh, the the um, the empathetic way we, we go see these properties and kind of pour ourselves into this uh, notion that, you know, for two to three hours uh, we sit in front of a screen, we'll get lost in this story which the movie literally does when we go to see her premiere and we we watch 15 unedited minutes of of her uh, broadway in, in a very modern um it's sometimes bizarre yeah it's very like avant-garde yes which is actually it's it's a it's kind of a a thinly veiled reference to what a lot of musicals were doing in that era. Uh, Singing in the Rain and uh, An American Paris are two very classic examples where there was this um, trend where you had to have a big, like all the prestige musicals, like those two I just mentioned, had a show-stopping extended musical number where you would just basically go into a like if musicals are a fantasy world in and of themselves at some point the the protagonist would go into another inception level of fantasy and it would kind of double over itself and you'd watch about 15 minutes of uncut music there's a great um scene in white christmas which i just brought up with bing crosby where they are practicing the musical they're going to put on at the end of the of the film but you don't really necessarily know at the time the extent of what this sort of practice trial run is. And you see the entire scene play out, and then they are fully on in costume, hitting every note for the most part in this big, showy, six-minute-long musical number that ends with uh, one of the actresses getting thrown down you know, stairs, getting caught by other people and walking down, and everyone ends in this amazing sort of moment and then you just see like the two people in the audience like doing a golf clap and it's <laughs> it's 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 interesting to kind of take that out and just say oh this is just what these people are doing and we're so accustomed to seeing that in either in the theater we're or filling in the theater. blanks right right yep and where you're just like oh there's supposed to be thunderous applause now when it's just like oh they're just these people performing yeah yeah and uh, and and putting everything I've even said aside, the the thing that puts us over the edge and what I continue to come back to is that this is one of my all-time favorite love stories depicted on film because I usually gravitate towards slightly more dysfunctional love stories than your average uh, romantic comedy one or something like that. Well, I think that's part and parcel because, like, love itself can be very dysfunctional. Yeah, but – and. It doesn't necessarily take away from any of the purity of it either, because mm-hmm. I watched this, and that's why I was a little worried when we were when we all three got together to watch it, because I think for me, and not worried because I like care what you two think or like that. Because, I don't give a fuck because yeah. Nick. <laughs> no, but I mean, like you guys have your own opinions. Right. I can't do anything to change that. Right. But I was just like, I, I was wondering, like, if we were going to be super far off or whatever. Because when the movie started, you guys had a lot of, I would say, vocal opinions about. Uh, Norman, which I'm not saying is abnormal or anything like that. Well, I mean, the, 
mean, let's just be honest. It's a 1950s film that starts off with this drunk British guy just storming onto a stage. No, it does, but it for me at least, the first time I watched it, I guess I had a slightly different reaction. Okay. That's why I, I didn't know if like we were going to just go off into a completely different path. Mm-hmm. Whereas the first time I watched it, I was kind of astounded by it opened up very abrasively, but felt like the movie was self-aware for the first time. Like Whereas like when I watched, like, we watched the original Ocean's Eleven movie the other day, and there was a lot of, shall we say, rampant kind of misogyny oh, and, yeah. and drunk behavior, whatever. That felt like a movie that was like, oh, those were the times. Like This movie, I felt like, it does open up in a very... Uh, Whatever way, but the, does so in a way where like you're actually you should be mortified by what he's doing. And the real nice thing, uh, and I am someone who always is on the lookout for potential callbacks in movies, and not that I, because I at the time I was like, oh, how are we going to rope back back to this? But I want to say the uh, the callback that ropes back to the uh, event that happens with the lipstick about ten to fifteen minutes in. I was not expecting in, that. That that comes out of nowhere and it hits really good. Yeah, it, yeah. The, the way that I mean that's and that's part of why I love this runtime. Mm-hmm. Some people might call it a slog, but I think it's just so necessary to go on this entire journey so that when we do get all the way back to that moment, that just works twenty times better for us, the viewer, to to feel that way after like in a a three-hour elastment time. Imagine how um, Judy Garland's character felt like after so many years of being with this person and to come back to that one area. And not and, and she was already reluctant to come there, but then to still see that this thing is still there after all this time. Yep, and yeah, and just to see their names quite literally together forever in a, mm-hmm. in a way that's both <laughs> tragic and yet beautiful. Yeah. Um, and not to mention... Like I've mentioned on this podcast before, before I pass it off to you guys, mm-hmm. that's also another great example of what I love in movies, which is the empathy bait and switch, where we're introduced to a person that may seem like they're awful or they're whatever, but all we have to do is learn more about them. doesn't mean that they change or whatever, but just getting to know somebody has all that effect so that by the next time we see the uh, the lipstick, it's like that's the same person that, you know, was in that beginning of the movie, but it just takes on a whole new meaning just like, you know, our view of that person does. And yeah. so, yeah, the, the love story between uh, Norman uh, and... I say between Norman and Esther because I think that's the ultimate uh, failure of why their their relationship didn't work. Is because it's Norman is in love with Esther and she became Vicky, and yet Vicky was in love with, shall we say, uh, uh, well, they would say Norman, but he was never going to. Um, but he was always going to be. She, he always knew her as as Esther, whereas everybody else like referred to her as as Vicky Lester and he was then referred to after the fact as Mr. Lester yeah. which and also in in addition we were talking about people having stage names mm-hmm. when we have the marriage scene and right. he's referred to by his actual name which is Ernest yes. and she like shoots the look at like oh you never told me that yep yeah. uh, and by the way really quickly before I pass it off that marriage scene when they when they're at the county clerk I love that the fact that that shot opens up with the vows basically being read over the shot of the prisoners that are just right there in the uh, yes themselves. yes so anyway was... I absolutely love this movie I have a million things to say but please take it away um yeah I was not really sure how I was going to feel about this movie because I've never really seen anything too much about it a very limited Judy Garland palette uh, obviously seen Wizard of Oz many times but other than that, I've I haven't seen much of her other than some parts of Meet Me in St. Louis. 
Um, this film was for me shockingly great. Um, and I say that because I feel like I'm still in awe that a film exactly like this was made in the mid 1950s. Like for me thinking about that, that my mom is in her sixties right now and she was two years old when this movie came out. It just blows my mind just because of how, shockingly progressive this film feels for a 1950s musical it it seems very aware of what hollywood is it also seems aware of the characters and the actors that are that are playing the characters too i mean the the idea of judy garland who famous for having um substance abuse problems throughout her entire life. Which is also tied up in the production of it as uh, Cary Grant was offered the role of James Mason's character and he turned it down because of how... uh, And this film, for its time, had an extremely long production schedule because they had to keep delaying production because she wouldn't be there. It was was also delayed um, because I was reading up about this like production started around like 1953 and after about maybe half a year of, of stuff they did they showed it, showed it to the studio and they decided to convert it all to cinemascope and so yeah, they, they had, had to, to throw, throw out everything like holy shit yeah this was the very first warner brothers production in cinemascope and i have to say there are some times when it clearly shows that this was not necessarily um, like wonderfully done oh yeah um, no i mean that's so. the thing about the cinemascope is that they're like that first 20 minutes basically makes the cinemascope worth it because mm-hmm. when they're at the, uh, the actual yeah. gala like it just looks amazing but then when they have to start cutting around uh, certain close up shots and medium shots it's it gets not... a little dicey but it but it, it still looks and it, it it does it, yeah. it, it really looks good um, two things I definitely want to mention in my opening thoughts uh, Judy Garland playing this character was absolutely fantastical to me like it was it was incredible to see her playing this character opposite a an alcoholic and and hearing her feelings on it it's it's almost like unfathomable for me to you know have my preconceived notion of what Judy Garland's life was probably like and and then to see her playing this role and especially when you get into that absolutely incredible scene where she is talking with the head of the studio uh, in the room, trying to figure out exactly what's going on with Norman as he's he's in the uh, the rehab program for the most part, mm-hmm. and she has an in, an incredible line saying about how unhappy she is with herself and with him, saying that I hate him for failing is like like hearing like someone with the history of Julie Garland saying saying that about someone in a movie is it's just eerie it's it's just heart-wrenching for so many different reasons yeah and it's it's just like the the whole story and the way it all flows throughout is honestly just incredibly done as a film like forget about the musical aspect of it which is which is great like there are a lot of great parts of this mu- this movie that has to do with it being a musical that are are just great to watch and, and fun to watch the choreography between the characters. Um, the, the other thing I'll hit on, and it's something that I always look for in movies because it's something I love. The lighting and coloring in this movie is absolutely oh fantastic. God. Like it, so it, many it, shots that like, like dusk or twilight. Mm, it's great. And so many unbelievable shots 
changing lighting patterns on certain things. Like uh, the scene outside the nightclub with the one side of the club being red and the other side completely blue. Yeah. Uh, Judy Garland's big uh, solo early on in the film, probably about like 25 minutes in. In the jazz club after after hours. Right. Where Tucson, I believe you pointed out, which I guess I hadn't even really paid too much attention to, where she's completely in the light and the rest of them are all in shadows. Like seeing that kind of, of one take, yeah. Holy shit. Seeing that kind of filmmaking from a 1950s uh, musical is—it's just—it makes me feel like everyone who fails at making movies these days should probably just quit. Like, it, <laughs> yeah. like because they—they they put such high expectations on themselves that if somebody like fucked up on the like, the, the second to last note of a song like that, there was like. We're reshooting it. We're doing it all over again. Like, holy fucking but shit. It, so many things in this film were done right. And it's, yeah. it's it's one of those movies looking back on that you're just like, fuck, man. Like, they got so many aspects of this right that even if there are small little things about it that I don't love, it really doesn't matter yeah. because it's inconsequential to the entire package working so well together. Yeah. L- like, the w- when, 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 I'm, when I'm saying that, I was like... Um, when they they put so much pressure on themselves, like I feel like it's it extends not only to the very best of the best, best directors at that time, but even the directors that were probably obviously phoning it in, like they even had higher standards for themselves than the, the than the the shit directors that we have nowadays who just like come in to like claim a paycheck. Yeah, but it, um, the performances are fabulous. The the menacing and horrible um, undertones of some of the supporting characters, really yeah. for me feels almost ahead of its time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, especially uh, Libby, I believe, the, the yeah. character who is um, Norman's, like, pretty much his, his right-hand his man. Yeah. He's the PR, because that's the other thing. His, his right-hand man is more of a, uh, what's his name, uh, Oliver or whatever. Well, um, yeah. Kind of. As far as yeah. who, like, like they, like, by the end, you find out, like, he's the only one who actually kind of cared about him. Yeah, but he also knew him when he was earnest, probably, right. where Libby was just kind of following him around, and he was honestly, like, the understudy was just like, you need to keep an eye on him and make sure he doesn't fuck up. And he pretty much made, like, a life goal out of making him miserable. And it, we, we get to the very end, and you see how fake everybody is at every level. Yes, we were so sad. It's like we were really, like, aiming for our... For uh, a come up, a return, and right. and we get that just scummy and sleazy final line that he has in it, where it's just it just made me feel icky, like like this. This is this the way guy, the world ends, not with a bang, but with a whimper, right? Like T.S. Eliot. Yeah. This this guy is honestly he is thrilled right now that he what? committed suicide. That uh, Norman committed suicide. What I love about the Libby character is that when we get to the scene in the bar at the horse track uh when um when Norman pulls up a chair and he's sober and he's out of the sanitarium and he's trying to make a turn a new leaf whatever mm-hmm. and Libby ends up being there and because they're no longer uh work affiliated Libby can't help himself to basically just start telling him off what i love about that scene is that it is so despicable Despite the fact that you understand exactly why Libby's doing that. I mean, mm-hmm. think about the way that these two were interacting in the very first scene in the movie in which <laughs> Norman Maine is completely drunk and he's slapping Libby and he's like, why do you disgust me? You know, and- I mean, I, I guess it, it's probably a bad example, but 
Like, imagine these days if a well-known alcoholic was out in public somewhere and someone, like, was trying to get them to drink again. Yeah. Like, that's just like, what the fuck? That's what I mean, though. And, that, yeah. and it's like, in, in one simple motion, or, you know, like, we can basically forget the fact that Norman has caused him a lot of, like, trouble and pain and annoy whatever. But, like, there's a certain level of humanity that Norman has that even characters like Libby don't, you know. It's just Norman was his own, you know, worst problem. And yeah. That's the sad tragedy of it. So, yeah, just to sum up my feelings, I've got a lot more little things that I, I, I definitely wish, wish, hope we're able to talk about. Yeah. And if we don't get to all of them, that obviously is okay. But um, this was a fantastic film that I am eager to watch again, three-hour runtime run or not. If it's good, it doesn't really matter how long it is. Right. So. Your favorite movie is Casino. That's true. My favorite yeah. movie is Magnolia. And they're both three-hour <laughs> three films, so there you go. <laughs> Moving on to Jusant, who I believe also enjoyed this movie as well. Yes, I did. I absolutely really, really did enjoy this film. Um, I, I think you guys have sort of touched on it at some point, like all the things that I, I drew from this film, especially with that, that particular thing that you were mentioning, Alex, uh, when – uh, Esther is singing in the after hours jazz club. Like I love the way that not only because the, the light falls on her, but because of how the shadow plays with like the actual jazz players. Like it just looks like a Norman Rockwell painting. It just looks so fucking beautiful. Yeah. The lighting in this film is terrific. The mise en scène, like consummately where you're talking uh, with, with, when Alex is talking about like in the uh, the alley scene where one side is lit red and the other side is lit blue, it's just like it's so comprehensive. Can I just say that when we we all three watched this movie together, uh, uh, Tucson and Alex came over to my humble abode mm-hmm. oh, that's owned by my parents. <laughs> <laughs> um, and when we were watching it, I think it's no coincidence that because I had to keep pausing it to go get beers or uh, to go to the bathroom because it's certainly a long movie. Mm-hmm. Like every time I paused it, like obviously once or twice it was like a silly pot whatever, but just about every other time it was like a like I would take a still shot of what every that was. frame of painting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was it was it's such a beautiful film uh, in in more ways than one, both visually and thematically and and just just technically. But uh, my my first impression of of the film is like because I've obviously seen uh, Wizard of Oz. I've, that's was one of my favorite films when I was a child. Like I just watched it over and over again. Um, and it took me a while to just make that connection between that Judy Garland and this Judy Garland. And it was like, as soon as I saw her, I was just like, wow, she's beautiful. And then like, it, it sort of all came back to me that I actually knew about this film. I learned about this film in my junior year when I took like an introduction to America's cinema, cinema course. And I actually knew about the ending and it was just somehow like nestled in the back of my mind. It was only until like we were like over the halfway mark that I was like, wait, this is that <laughs> film. Yeah. Um, and, and that was just quite a trip for me because like I was able to have a, a pretty much a, a blanket new first impression for the film itself while at the same time kind of like growing to reconcile the prior knowledge that I had like after the fact. Like Norman Mailer when I first saw his uh, – his, no, Norman, Norman Maine. Norman Maine. Sorry. I keep on doing that. Sorry. <laughs> I, I, I know. Okay. So, Norman Maine, um, when he was first introduced and he's just like drunkenly just like – fucking everything up through a guy through a fucking mirror i was like holy <laughs> shit this guy needs someone needs to like lay this guy out jump on a horse i mean what can't he do he is drunk <laughs> off his ass but he somehow has the uh, 
the capacity to jump onto a horse. And I gotta say though, for and 19- land safely off. <laughs> yeah, for 1954, I feel like it's pretty good drunk acting. I'm not saying it's not a touch broad, but mm-hmm. in general, like it, it's the kind of drunk acting where I feel like, no, I've seen that. It is also very damning of of audiences everywhere, at least from this time period. That without a doubt, since he is the big star, he gets the biggest pop from the audience when he strolls out drunk onto yep. the stage yeah. and does that just drunken Where the fuck dance. he did, yeah. Yeah. And we, he even visibly pushes uh, Judy Garland's yeah. character, but because of his status, like, that's not mm-hmm. really a, a, a... Which is all that really matters, It's right? all part of the act, right? Yeah. It's all part of the act. I, I thought that um, Norman Maine... My... My impression of him evolved like wildly from like my initial like, in, like my initial impression of him simply because like, I just just to to reiterate, I had forgotten what the premise of this film was until like after the halfway mark, and then I remembered everything. Um, I thought that he was just going to be an incidental character. I thought that like this guy's like there's no way that this this fuck up is gonna be a central leading character of this film, and it turns out he is. Um, and then like as as it went on, like leading into the halfway mark, I thought it's like I just really grow to resent this guy because I just think that he's gonna he's gonna hurt this. He's going to hurt Vicky. He's going to hurt Esther. And I was like, I think that's really, I, I just think that's bullshit. Talk about resent, though. Um, and Nick, this is something you brought up and we, we talked about after viewing the film yesterday is that this film goes out of its way almost to stay away from all the tropes and, and all that. Yeah. Like, uh, resentment should be a huge part of, of Norman's character at, mm-hmm. the, at the end of this film like he should hate vicky if this was following the hollywood story and it's quite the opposite yeah. of that i mean it's like the most he ever gets like annoyed at her well a, the, the, can... the oscar ceremony but well i wasn't gonna Oof. say that i was gonna say as far as like directed at her was for me at least is um when we have the scene in which back at their house um when he has to play secretary to her yeah and yeah. relay all the phone messages and all that mm-hmm. but even that seems like it's very misguided and it's more just that he hates himself and where yeah. he is and yeah. whatnot. the oscar ceremony is the one the oscar that's... ceremony yeah. I, I guess and I think that's kind of great about this movie that for for this era it's so nuanced that you can read a lot of different things into it. But that was way more of a self pitying thing than had to do with. Would Vicky. Would you say that the Oscar scene from this film is like one of your favorite scenes? Yeah, and I, I said and, that to and, you guys, and, and I and I think that like. It's it's kind of telling for the fact that it's one of your favorite scenes, and that for me is just one of those scenes that just like kills me and then buries me in the ground. I forgot because... that we were watching this with you. Yeah. As far as because you yeah, know, like when I watch any movie with Tucson, I have to remember if there's like cringe comedy or just cringe anything. Yeah, and that scene is that scene it, in this movie. Like I I I I love mumblecore. I love cringe comedy. I I think that like it's very clever, but just like the condition of it just like strikes way too like real for me and it's just like it totally fucking wrecks me. And you know, even just the way that scene is edited. I mean, we're treated to Vicky uh winning her award and mm-hmm. of course we we get the this great is her moment. Yeah, and it's the great medium shot that she has to share the moment uh when she's sitting down with an empty chair. You know, it's not like it's a close up on her. Yeah. And then as she goes up there and I love that we're introduced to Norman's presence through the audio clapping before we actually see him. Like we know where this train is going to, you know, wreck itself off course before 
before we're introduced to the train visually. We've all seen the the Taylor Swift Kanye West like, <laughs> acceptance videos. Like I thought, it's like, oh, Norman Maine's pulling a Kanye West. Wait a minute, Kanye West pulled pulled a Norman Maine. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I mean, and and look at other awards ceremonies that have had like disastrous things, like the oh, yeah. uh, the Marlon Brando yep. part of, of uh, with oh, us. Yeah, I was gonna say. That. I mean, it's a pretty sadly common thing. Um, yeah, especially not in modern days. Right, when it wasn't as televised. Yeah. And but, God, that really quickly, can we just talk about that scene yeah. just since we're on it? That is my favorite scene in the entire movie for so many different reasons. One, because of the fact that I think it does an amazing job of kind of sending, not a message, but detailing things that are very prevalent even today, which is the difference between public perception and private perception. So we have a relationship between Vicky and um, and Norman that we as the audience, we know so much more about than like, you know, everybody that's sitting in that room. But we also know what it looks like to just to them, you know. So when we have Vicky accepting her award and him unfortunately crashing it and then not just crashing it but making an ass of himself making an ass of himself begging for a job I mean and barely being able to even sit down or whatever and then capping it all off with accidentally too and that's really why it's even more tragic uh, slapping uh, his wife uh, in front of everybody like What's great is that everybody sitting there does not have all the pieces to the puzzle, and that doesn't change what he does. It doesn't mean that what he does is okay or anything Mm -hmm. like that, but I just love the complexity behind the idea that we as the audience know that there's just so much uh, more to the story, more to the story, so much turmoil and so much heartbreak uh, between the two of them that makes me love the two of them together more than I probably should. And it also, uh, if you talking about this film being an actual um, visual on what Hollywood is, was, however you want to say it. Uh, we see what the camera shows us, not what actually is happening. Yeah. So yeah. you think you have the full story on people because of tweets or, or tabloids or old commercials or whatever, but you're never going to have the full picture yeah. anywhere close. Yeah. To you obviously had some more to say, I would guess. Yeah, I... I... My whole relationship of my impression of, of Norman Maine just, like, took several different turns. I think that at some point, like, at the intermission, like, you asked – like, Nick asked us, like, what do we think what was going to happen? I was way off um, just because, like, I was already ready to, to cast aside this character for just this – malicious, um, egotistical, like, selfish bastard. Well, you weren't way off, because actually what was funny and why I almost had to, like, stifle laughter was because your first response was, oh, I think he's going to die. But obviously you didn't mean it in the way... I mean, I I felt that he was going to die, but... (laughs) Right, but that he was going to... You didn't mean it in the way that he was going to make the conscious choice to do so, and and the ramifications of what that might be. So so it was like... it, It was like... Um, throwing darts and it was like right accidentally next to the actual center and yeah. then like the next dart was like right on the rim of the of the actual board which I thought was like in hindsight is like really hilarious um, but looking back on on the entirety of this film like I've been I've been tussling with that that question that uh, that Caroline like like posed to us like whether or not it was selfish or not and I God help me! I I, I don't I I, I don't want to throw Norman under the bus here because there's there's at least one scene that I feel like 
stands in defiance of that that initial veneer of of just like braggadociousness that he has where they're at some party and uh esther tries to pull him aside and they're like talking and stuff and he's like you know it's like we have to end this and just like why is like i love you and just like i ruin everything that i touch and it's just like he's at least self-aware enough of like his effect and like how his very nature like like jumping forward a little bit when when Towards the end of the film, when Esther is like asking, um, what, "What's his name?" Uh, the the studio guy who helps out, Oliver. Oliver. He's asking Oliver, "Like, why does he do this? Why does he destroy himself? Why does he drink?" And I'm just like, "You think if I if I knew that, like, I wouldn't have tried to like help him in all, in all these these different ways?" Like, I don't think that 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 Norman even knows. I, I think there's like something deeply embedded with him, like a a a an addictive personality or an insistence within him that like leans towards self-destruction. And that's why he doesn't want to bring her. He, he's, he's very reluctant at first to bring her into his world because he knows that he will eventually like tarnish something despite himself. And also be, and also like that will not, that that will not diminish her love for him. Yep. And that kills him. Literally and figuratively, yeah. yeah. What I want to say about this this film, and, and going back again, and I probably can't mention this enough, about how it's incredible to see that this was a movie released in the 1950s yes. and, and, and how much is happening here. We see a very, um, I would say, almost modern, in terms of film-wise at least, understanding of, um, not understanding, I guess that's a bad word, the, the way that this film feels about suicide is very much not how I would assume a film yeah. of that era would portray suicide. I mean, we mm. we have a character who, when he finally does decide to make to make that decision, it is not a long, drawn-out. It just that happened to be the time that he, he landed on that. But it, it does show that whatever you want to say about, about suicide and whatever your feelings are, are mm-hmm. on it or, and how it affects other people, how it affects the person who, who commits suicide. The, like the reasoning behind why the person committing suicide is doing it is never, I feel like it's at least in film, it never ends up being for the, like it never works out the way that they picture it in their head when they decide to commit that it's act. Never quite as ambiguous, I think, in yeah. this nature. Like so many times, a movie can't help itself but like ex- over-explain it or or under-explain it. Like to either make it like a, you know, like a, for example, and I know it was television, but film television. But like uh, in the house and in, in the TV show House, one of the supporting characters commits suicide, and that that was a example of like. They couldn't figure House tries to figure it out, but he can't figure it out why because it's such a mystery, and that's certainly a lesson in life. Like mm-hmm. that, that does happen, whatever. But you either have you run the danger of doing is something that, like is that Cutner. It was that's yes, okay. yeah, Cal Penn's character. Yep. Um, but you either run the danger of doing something like that, which was actually well handled on that, or you you go to the other end of the spectrum where you over-explain it and you have like either a suicide letter conveniently tie up all narrative ends, or you know that thing. The fact that his suicide truly does feel like it is two things: it's a and a reaction because it quite literally is he to her, right? Which which is an even more terrifying thing when you look back at it because she's obviously very sad that that he has passed away uh, and and 
when we as the audience, which is amazing that this film specifically shows a lot of things to the audience that a lot of other characters don't have in terms of information, that she's the one who's basically responsible for him deciding to ultimately commit suicide, at least in, in, in that moment no, but in sense that, of in it. The media, and that's yeah. what I was saying in the sense that it, it portrays suicide as something that's both a reaction and, uh, and an as inescapable sense of dread based on whatever the immediate future holds for you, which was his reaction to what Vicky, what he overheard Vicky and Oliver talking about. And yet it also feels like it happened in a vacuum where mm-hmm. like the character wasn't suicidal from the beginning and just finally that thing put him over. It literally feels like this just didn't even cross his mind until this moment. Agreed. And then because he is that impulsive person, he decides that just like when he decides to take that next drink or to, you know, to unfortunately. And it, it's, it's such a, it's such a incredible Hollywood moment to have him literally walking off into the sunset as he commits suicide. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's the danger, <laughs> not the danger, but that's the, uh, the wonderful thing about this ending is that it, it, it frames it so beautifully, which thematically ties into the question on as to whether this was selfish or selfless. Like, mm-hmm. how can something that should be that evil and, shall we say, uh, unquestionably uh, one-track-minded, at the end of the day, still leave room in our heads for doubt as to whether maybe that's what he should have did. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's one or the other, but yet we can never choose one. It's the, the dichotomy of how that, that scene is framed where like Alex, it's like what you were saying. It was like, it's, it's classic Hollywood picture esque where he's walking off into the sunset while his wife is singing the song, mm-hmm. um, you know, over it too. That's a soundtrack. There, I, there's just so many, literally her career is flourishing the, in the, the moment. There's, <laughs> there's the, the aesthetic level. And then there's the, the literal level of what he's actually committing himself to do. And I, I don't know. Just, just even, even considering like those layers of how, how they, they they're juxtaposed with one another within that same scene. Like, is it a? It doesn't feel like a a romanticization of of suicide, but I feel like when when you look at it on its face, there it's like you actually like take those parts apart. Like it almost dangerously like skews there. Like you could actually take that from that. Like. Like he he's trying to. But it leaves it up to the audience. Like it it, it, it trusts the audience to yeah. know that no movie. Unless it's like a, a literally irresponsible movie or something like right. that, condemn something like suicide. So therefore, we can play with these ideals that maybe this is what a character believed to be the right thing and has rational justification for believing so. Yeah. And yet, we should still know at the end of the day that nothing is concrete as this is the right thing or the wrong thing. Right. Can we skip ahead to the final five okay. words of this movie? Okay, because this is. Probably what I think of when I have an immediate reaction to the question of what's my favorite final line in a movie. I'm not saying if I sat down and like did research and remembered all the final, but this is the one that always pops up uh, in the running. But mm-hmm. hello, everybody. This is Mrs. Norman Maine. It's just one of the most emotionally charged uh, statements uh, in a movie uh, with a lot of emotionally charged statements, but for the fact that, and Caroline Decker kind of uh, commented on this, obviously, in her email, but the fact that after all this, after she's become a star, both with the help of Norman, but also through her own volition, Mm -hmm. that her 
legacy will now always be tied to Norman Maine. Yeah. The, I, what, like, I, I think it's it's more incredible in a in a film that is so in tune with how important building your brand is in Hollywood. Yeah. Your brand. You have a you, well, yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, you see, it's still very evident in this movie, even back in the fifties. You have you have a, a woman who's having her first appearance back in public after however long we don't we actually don't really know how long it's actually been since she's locked herself in her house since the funeral, but you have her first kind of announcement and there's no way to get away from from Norman Maine. No, but that's the other thing is that it also feels like the flip side of Norman's choice because. What she's doing, okay, so going out there, making this public appearance, um, and, you know, she gets that uh, spiel from her old bandmate saying, like, you know, he, which, who I find to be, like, the true asshole of this movie, <laughs> <laughs> uh, because the way he talks about Norman Maine as if, like, that was the first good thing he's done is to kill himself, <laughs> so that way, you know, and you can mm. understand why someone, oh. unfortunately, would have that horrible opinion, you know, whatever, but, like, that's how he lays it out for it, it's like, and so, so are you really going to now throw away your career because of what he was able to do for you, whatever, um, it, so is her saying this is Mrs. Norman Maine? That's the choice she's making. So is that also is that a is that another selfless act in a long line of them? Like is she doing that because she also knows that at the end of the day he was so consumed by the fact that he was never going to be what he once was that this was her last chance to immortalize him. Or do you think it was more of her being trapped in a system that doesn't allow her to flourish without his assistance? I, I, I'm more inclined to uh, believe that it was the latter rather than the former, um, mostly because, like I've already um, stated my case on this, that I, I ultimately feel like Norman Maine is a tragic character because looking at the the immediate scene uh, that that precedes him actually like meeting with with Vicky with Esther and then walking off into into the sunset goes back to his home planet whatever <laughs> oh boy uh what, what's that uh that, that joke from the Simpsons like snowball yeah. went back to his home planet snowball uh, it was snow- no Santa's little helper goes back to his home planet nope not Santa <laughs> god damn it just keep going anyway Fido goes no, back it, to his home planet what? no Fido it's, it's goddamn even I barely watch any Simpsons and I know it's the um it's the new like the red little character that was added it was um god I'm gonna look this up but it's like poop Pookie or something? <laughs> Pookie. No, I guess that's... Well, anyway. I'm going to look this up. That, okay. That's distracting from uh, the, the, the no, point... this I was, is important. The point I was trying to make. Um, Are we talking about Family Guy here? No. no we're talking about The Simpsons. Oh. Simpsons. Okay. So, back to what I was actually saying. The, the immediate scene that precedes him, like, meeting with Ether, Esther and then walking into the ocean to kill himself. Um, we see him with his... his face highlighted like in bed like and he overhears like they don't know that Poochie Poochie okay so I was actually Poochie okay much okay. closer than you were okay, okay. well I can see to that Poochie went back to his home planet um Norman <laughs> is able to overhear their conversation because the window was open and they don't know that he's able to hear it and basically Oliver tells us like he's washed up it's like he he was done well before like any sort of bad film like he already premeditated this with his own like behavior and there's nothing that you can really do for him and she's willing to just like throw her entire 
like career aside at the very peak of her her prominence just because she loves this person so much and i feel like watching the 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 death mask of horror that just kind of like falls over his face um i think that he sort of just kind of like realizes that the the statement that he and this is just me putting it together the statement that he made earlier um in the film where he says like he's no good for her like he ruins everything that he touches like that's literally a self-fulfilling like premonition like he has done this he is through his very nature through something that he cannot help for how selfish he is like there's an inherent selfishness to him that he loves this person but he cannot help but be the way that he is no matter how many times he goes to the sanatorium no matter how many times that he tries to be that man for her like he, like even when he proposes like he's just like no it's like i'm i'm going to turn you down it's like why it's like they're just bantering and like like kicking it back and forth and she's like it's like well you drink too much it's like well what if i didn't drink anymore it's like he wants to be that man for her but like he can't yeah although let's can we talk about that proposal yeah because okay i i mentioned that the oscar scene is my favorite scene in this movie and mm-hmm. that, that that's got that element of like cringe to it i gotta say for me a person who never uh shall we say succumbs to cringe at least physically or whatever mm-hmm. the the proposal scene is the most uncomfortable scene in the movie for me really because of the fact that we're treated to a proposal in which happens both not off screen, but off uh, audio because of the fact that um, the the band is playing and their mics are down, but they're being recorded. So what happen- What ends up happening is that she basically turns him down, even though they have this banter of him, like, right. can he sober up, whatever. But then because the assholes in the booth decide to play this private conversation for all public ears to have, then that's the only thing that leads her to propose to him is her saying, Oh, well that's much too public of a proposal for me to say no to. I accept. Uh, and that's the start of this marriage. I mean, I think it's very telling. It, and it doesn't mean that I don't think that the two don't love each other, but it's such an uncomfortable foundation for these two to move forward. And, of course, we see how – There's a performative quality to it that, like, well, now that it's out there in the open, how yes. can I not – Satirical in, in the Hollywood eye. I mean, yeah, that's – it. Damn. Still talking about that final scene and the final yeah. words of this movie – is there any way anyone can look at the final moment of this film and think it is a positive thing for Judy Garland's character? I think it's played that way. I think there's a, I guess I can watch it and I can think it's positive in 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 an aspect in the sense that I genuinely felt that they loved each other and more that- specifically that I think her love for him was in the more classical sense of the term in Hollywood films. Yeah. But what I was also going to say is that that she, besides loving him, and I mean so like separate from that fact, like that is an undisputable fact yeah. in my head, that besides that, that she does owe him something for making her Vicky Lester. What, what, if, what if, I guess... For me, and, and that's why I'm, I'm not disagreeing with anything you guys are saying, because for the most part, I'm, I'm right there with you, with, with both of your guys' opinions on, on the ending of this film. But at the same time, I feel like she's just happy that she got to be his wife for however long she was able to. And she's proud, almost, that she can say that she was Norman Maine's wife. Because she she loved him as a person. She thought he was a great person. All the good with all the bad. Like, she she loved 
what he was as a person. And she's just proud of the fact that she's always going to be Norman Maine's widow. That's a reading that I've never personally like experienced. And yet okay. how I see that scene fits alongside what you're saying. So okay. it's like, you know, like that's just another side. I'm not, of I'm not I, I guess I'm just trying to see because that was my very initial words coming out of her mouth reaction to it. And then I started thinking about it more. Oh, yeah. But I'm just trying to look at all no, the but, different but, but readings. But that's what I mean that in the sense that the, yeah. like, that's not a wrong reading either. Yeah. And, um, and that's what I love about that final line. It's just that it, it makes you feel all of these emotions, and then you have to start figuring out which one are real and which one aren't, and and all of that. Um, I'm trying to think. There was one other thing I wanted to discuss, but now I did. About the, the oh. movie as a whole, or, or about that part? Hmm. About uh, the movie as a whole. Okay. Oh, something we really haven't talked about is the the songs mm-hmm. in general, since this is certainly a musical, obviously kind of atypical in the sense that it's all diegetic music, and uh, they certainly... Which I love, by the way. Yeah, I thought that And I, I actually had you pause it, I think, about 25 minutes in, and I actually had to ask you if there was any non-diegetic music in this film, and you said no, and you actually knew exactly what I was going to ask you. I was going to say, before you said it, I can't remember what the words were, but like I stopped you, and I'm like, nope, there is no diegetic music. Well, which is, it, I think it's awesome, though, because it is great to see a film that isn't forcing that, even though there are a lot of great musicals, that, that that's just the way that. their film is going to be. That's and what I La La that. Land is probably going to exactly be. But it works so well in this, and it, and it and it flows so well together too. Yeah, without ever sacrificing, shall we say, the broad musical stylings of what those, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, non-diegetic uh, musicals do. Because like here, we do get classical musical numbers that they're only singing for our entertainment because they're singing for somebody else's entertainment. So, like, when we see the uh, the recording of the one scene with her and the children in the alleyway, which is kind of a singing in the rain almost uh, mashup because they're literally stomping in puddles, or um, the the opening number, Gotta Have Me Go With You, which I think is a great number. Um, God, every time I listen to that song, by the way, I'm a soundtrack, and I hear Garland giggle during um, one of the final verses. I can, I, it's one of those moments where I actually have like the moment when she giggles in my brain, visually seared, because it's when she's trying to get Norman to go back, mm-hmm. uh, you know, behind the curtain, and it's. I, it's just a, such a subtle moment, but the, that's when she does fall in love because there is something devilishly charming about him. And compared to everybody else, she tries to help him. Everybody else tries to prevent him from being. And that's ultimately where their love started. It's and really I, a microcosm for the entire film. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like, you know, she's trying to save his uh, face it's, publicly. It's amazing because... It, it, Talk about tropes. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but she's never like enabling his alcoholism or anything like that because the film never really even becomes about that. It's just a uh, characteristic of his character. Yep. Um, another performance I absolutely love is uh, Someone at Last, which is so extravagant. And that's where this movie certainly is a musical, like where mm-hmm. it, it's, it's diegetic because she goes over there and puts it on or whatever. But there's just no way that this is just all right there for her to uh, you know use and whatever. But her... Um, just detailing this globalization of of musical stylings uh, as uh, he has to sit and watch her uh, <laughs> is just both kind of painful because 
you know, obviously all she's doing is detailing everything he can't do anymore. Yeah. And yet also just one of the pure moments between where they're actually bonding over what they both excel at, which is being a, an actor or actress. And and just couple that with the the wonderful strobing effect of the uh, the the projector and just and the fact that that happens pretty much in I want to say an all in one take but it, at least it's edited in a way where you forget where the cuts are because it just happens so elegantly that it's a wonderful six minute stretch and I hate to use this this term so I guess brazenly it was like but there, there's something about that that scene in particular where she's like relating like what the entire like globalized routine of what she has to do. Like, it's like, Oh honey, this is what I did at work. Like we're not seeing the film as, as what was meant to be presented within the actual context of the film. We're having this person like sort of like paraphrase and relate it while at the same time, it still like retains all of the affectation, all of the, the bombosity and all of the presentation that we would have from a, a, a musical number yep. because it's within an actual musical itself. So it's a character who is relating it, it, it's just like um in it's like in Hail Caesar when uh the, the uh Josh Brolin's character is watching like the dailies and then they have like the <laughs> the the actual like Hail Caesar like yep. uh Tyler Carr come up and there's like divine presence meant to be like inserted like yep. after the fact it's like it's that fourth wall breaking where it just feels meta like I, I use the term meta because that's what a lot of moments of this film feel like. Speaking of Hal Caesar, how about the moment when Judy Garland goes to the studio for the first time? She gets paraded around and immediately sent out the exit on the other side. Yeah, <laughs> that whole scene is fantastic silent comedy. That reminds me of actually the stylings of uh, Jacques Tati, uh, who's a French uh, visual director who makes a lot of largely silent movies. Like not literally silent films, but like dialogue uh, sparse movies where – in his magnum opus uh, movie called Playtime, that's a movie where you follow one character, his famous character, um, M. Hulo, uh, as you follow him trying to get to a job, or job interview as he goes through an entire building and he can't find his way and he goes from floor to floor to office to cubicle to cubicle to wide shot and you just watch a man walk through uh, the modern world completely lost. Mm. Uh, so when we see her go through all that and we see how uh, labyrinthian that layout is to the point where she just ends up back where she started, certainly that's satirical, uh, thematically depressing, you know, like just everything about that is just gold. And, and another thing about it too is uh, you get the feeling that she's just one of many people who have made the same journey. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. And not to mention, uh, thematically speaking, it the the journey she goes on, like after she comes down the initial gate, she goes and she sees publicity, the sign, and you see a, a poster of Norman Bain. So the idea that she goes uh, through this whole uh, office scape just to return back to that signpost of publicity Norman Bain is certainly a sad little detail. Yeah. Um, there's... The, the the whole 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 like musical number like before the actual intermission like the fifteen minute thing it was like yep. when we were talking about born that, in a trunk is the, the born name of it, yeah. born in a trunk where uh, Esther and Norman like are going to the premiere of her film Th that's another fourth wall breaking thing where it's like for an entire fifteen minutes we're just watching this scene from this actual film the cut from the the shot of the screen that they're watching mm -hmm. to like the actual cut to 
the movie they're watching is one of the weirdest but in a good way, like seamless transition where the first time I watched it, I was actually confused. That had me fucked up because yeah. like if I had just like black, like blanked out for just like a second, I would just be like, where the fuck is this character relative to where we found them? And it's just like you, you have to really be – you have to be on your toes about this because otherwise like – the scene goes on for so long that you can forget like how this actual scene fits into the actual context of the like you're not watching like Esther you're watching Esther as Vicky Lester as this character like performing in this musical number I was like oh my god yeah. it reminds me of um, uh, Louis Malley made a film which was a film adaptation of a Chekhov play called uh, uh, Uncle Vanya mm-hmm. it's his play and the film itself is called Vanya on 42nd Street because it's literally just a closed performance where he uh, he films a uh, uh, a play version of it directed by Andre Gregory and written by David Mamet. Uh, and the the moment in which that movie stops being a documentary where you see the actors, uh, Wallace Shawn, Andre Gregory, um, uh, Julianne Moore, and others, the moment in which they cease to be those actors like who exist in real life and become the characters is a seamless moment that the first time I watched that, I, it was like movie magic. I like I was like, holy shit. And and that's and this is a moment that happened forty years before that movie came out. And I where I'm just like, How like how did studio execs, like even though they certainly kind of butchered the cut after the theatrical run, like how did they even trust the audience this much, uh, you know, to go with this flow when so many things in that era uh, didn't go that full I, mile? I think it's honestly because they were still like, like, like cinema was still a very young medium and they were really just like testing the, the, the limits of what they could do. Like they were, they were, they really didn't know what the hell was actually going to work. Yeah. And so they just kind of like went out, out on a limb. Like before there was like a sort of like standardized like time length for a film before they got like got it down to like an hour and a half to like two hours. We had three hour cuts. Right. And I, and I will say also is that I think that's also why this movie is a musical, like so to speak, in the sense that like that's why this movie exists as it does is because – when it is so easy to show the execs these musical numbers and have them kind of ignore all the nuances that happen, uh, you know, in between all those scenes. Uh, it, uh, if this was a straight drama, I feel like there would have been a lot more studio notes as to how to portray the alcoholism and all that kind of stuff. But because you have these show-stopping numbers, it, it's a movie that is cathartic in its own right that's separate from the uh, emotional turmoil at play. Uh, an interesting movie I compared this to early on in the film, which was kind of fitting as we see the end of the film then, uh, was Birdman, uh, oh. which is something I compared this to early on. And yep. not that there's no, uh, no, but clear, the, but, but no. there's a lot of uh, a lot of kind of small, self-hating, suicidal thought, yeah. Hollywood. Um, An uncomfortable real-life meets fiction uh, yeah. parallel, too. And obviously two vastly different films, but still having a lot of the same kind of themes and also both done in a, in a very uh, well and also at the same time quite original way uh, for the kind of genre they're both in. So it, it's, it's just a real testament to this film, uh, Star is Born, the 1954 version, that it was able to put all this together in such a tight three-hour package for its time. It's just, it still just blows my mind. Yeah. 
Do you guys like to go to final ratings? Yes. Awesome. Yes, I, I guess myself and Tucson will start off so Nick can can uh, end this off and, and give a maybe elongated final thought. We'll see. But uh, I absolutely love this movie. I I was a huge fan, and I I, I guess I, I don't want to say that I don't usually give films a five-star rating after a first viewing, because I, I have done that before, and I'm a lot... Um, I'm a lot more giving with my five-star ratings than both you guys are. I, mm-hmm. I hand them out usually three times a year to, to films. And I, I don't even mind saying that I'm giving this a five-star rating because I love this movie. I pretty much loved everything about it. And this is a movie that I have no problem sitting down and watching again almost any time. Because I'm interested to see pretty much every part of it again and i'm interested to watch it over and over simply to really develop my feelings about these characters because i do feel like they are such deep characters even though they have such shallow roots on the surface can i ask you a question sure because uh originally there was a chance that we were going to possibly watch this with your wife uh emily mm-hmm. uh and that didn't end up uh panning out but i do know she's quite oftentimes a fan of musicals. Uh, do you think she would be a fan of this movie? I think she would like it. I don't think okay. she would love it. Okay. I was this curious is about that. Not necessarily the kind of musical she usually gravitates towards. That's understandable. But at the same time... Um, is she more of like a Rent Les Miserables no. sort of... Les Miserables, yes. Okay. Um, like The Sound of Music. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. More epic King, King musical and I, style. Yes. yes. I would say more... The, the prototypical musical as we know it. But at the same time, both of those uh, that I just mentioned have very, um, I would say, tragic storylines. They do, but like... like yeah, I actually haven't way. seen The King of I, but like something like The Sound of Music it deals with like one of the most horrific, shall we say, eras of our time, but does it in a way that's like yeah. glib and, oh. and like don't forget that yeah it's true but yeah. it's it's not also not um what's a, a good example like like rent or mm-hmm. no 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 um, but it's, it's, hairspray or something yeah. like that right. so no but but i, I think <laughs> yeah. she would like it i don't think and it, it's hard for me to really gauge too because a lot of musicals that emily really loves are ones that she viewed a lot of times when she was younger. So she has a lot of nostalgic sentimentality there. For sure. But I think she would like it. I was just curious, yeah. Yeah, no. Anyway. I I, uh, I don't think she would hate it. Let's yeah. put it that way. Um, I did, however. Hate l- it? Yes. And gave it five stars still. It's amazing. It's that good. <laughs> That's no. how good it is. It's <laughs> yeah. so bad. I, I love this movie. I, I can't say it enough. And I really can't say enough, too. How astounded I am of how modern this movie feels for a 1950s film. Like, we think about other films in this era and in how advanced this film feels. It's It blows me away because it, it it's not even just the story. It's all of the small technical details that just worked so well in this time period that um, I, I just loved. You brought up uh, the original Ocean's Eleven earlier. Like, I feel like some of the scenes where they're, like, driving between the casinos and it really looks like they just used the exact same scene and they just, like, changed the color grading on it. <laughs> they probably did. Yes, that's what it really feels like. And then you get the production value here, which is honestly way above anything that I would have expected from, from this time period. And it just, uh, just the whole thing just... 
it's one of those productions that they had all of the right people and not just most of the right people working on it. And it all just worked out so well together. And it's definitely a film that has stood the test of time. And then some, because here we are 60 years later, it still feels as bold as the day it came out. And uh, yeah, I, I can't imagine seeing this in the theater in the 1950s. Like I, I, that's why I was asking. How do you have a conversation afterwards? Well, like, I, I, I was I was asking Nick yesterday, talking about the history of this film. How much, how differently would this film have been viewed then, and and how would people have felt about it? Would they have felt differently about the actions of this? Maybe people when they saw it in the 1950s hated Norman Maine and hated the way he ended the the, the scene. Not necessarily that we should glorify mm-hmm. his suicide attempt or yeah. anything necessarily like that. But maybe people of that era felt completely differently about this film than someone seeing it for the first time in 2016 would feel. Right. For I don't sure. know. But I loved it. Yeah. Through and through. Five out of five for me. Uh, and this is someone who doesn't necessarily even love musicals, even though I like them. So yeah. highly recommend the 1954 version of A Star is Born. I have a really um, complicated impression of this film simply because like, of... of Already in my mind, I knew that I already knew about this film, but then only until like halfway into the film that I realized this was the film that I that I had so long ago had forgotten about. Like it's almost, and it feels weird weird to bring this up, but it's the only parallel that I can think of. It's kind of similar to my. It, it's sort of a companion experience to my experience of watching Brian Singer's like X Men uh, First Class for the first time, and that I I was watching that film and I was so engrossed in it that I had forgotten the previous knowledge of how, of knowing that Professor X like he doesn't have his legs anymore he can't he can't walk anymore and then as soon as that that scene happens where he loses his ability to walk that I was like it all just came into my mind is like holy shit like i was just so into it that i forgot like oh yeah he's supposed to be in a wheelchair exactly exactly <laughs> and i was just like oh my god it's like that's such an obvious detail a defining detail of like my previous experience of knowing this this property and that this film was able to be so engrossing for that that i was able to unconsciously like put that aside like i feel like that was the mark of a really good film whereas like in this like this is also sort of a similar situation where i already knew about this film uh, i had forgotten about it tucked it away in the back of my mind and had these initial like half impressions of like a first impression of the film and then halfway i realized wait i know what's going to happen and so it it moves from just being a um halfway just feeling out the actual like pacing and the actual like themes of the film to then realizing halfway through because of prior knowledge that this is a tragedy and then my my worldview of these characters kind of like shifts because of that and it feels Honest to God, I've never had an experience watching a film like that that before. It's like, and that's I think part and parcel to the actual quality of the film itself, and also just of my my previous history with it. This is in my mind a unquestionable masterpiece, and and I feel like in in a similar way to how I feel about like one of our previous episodes for Neon Demon, I feel like I could very easily give this a, a higher score. But I'm not going to give it as high a score as I think that I could because I feel like I need to watch more films in this genre to be able to truly appreciate and to truly be able to articulate. You don't need to worry about giving the Neon Demon a higher score. I'm, well, I, <laughs> here's the thing. It's like I feel Thanks, like I, I could watch a lot more giallo horror films. I could watch a lot more like films that are sort of like in that vein to be able to like see is, like the intricacies of what made that that. And it's like 
and that's the same case for for a star is born this film is is tragic this film is absolutely goddamn beautiful on a on a technical mise-en-scene level which is my bread and butter and and also on a thematic level and a narrative level is like the performances oh my god judy garland in 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 that scene where she's just like wiping off like the the makeup freckles like from crying she says like i hate him for failing i hate myself it's so what about what about the make? You talk about the makeup. How about the scene where uh, Norman throws her in the seat, pulls off her wig, and throws the shit on her face to wipe off the that, makeup? That really that that had me feeling some kind of way. Like I was like <laughs> I, I I was just like wait a minute. I know it's like you're perfect just the way you are. I was like wait a minute. What is she like looking <laughs> like that? Like who the fuck are you to put that? Sh- why are you why are you well, putting your hand in that jar and then putting he, that shit on her face? The only reason why. And I completely understand that reaction. Yeah. The only reason why I like that scene in the sense that it, it reinforces why I like these two together is because of the fact that Norman is, I think, unquestionably uh, her gatekeeper to, to enter this world. Mm-hmm. Whether that's right or wrong, yeah. that, that's that's up to the patriarchal system of Hollywood. That's not Norman's fault or whatever. Yeah. But because he is like her kind of mentor into this world, I like the idea that Besides the fact that, yes, he just doesn't like it in his own aesthetic views, but he can tell, because she even says it, that she, like, that she's spouting off, like, well, no, my nose is this, and whatever, because they were saying it, and so, while it's, yes, you could, if someone really wanted to argue, like, read into it that, like, it's patriarchal or misogynist or whatever, that because it's him that says it, but it's really more just, like, what love can do between two people, and that is to knock down the barriers of like caring what everybody else thinks like if you can just channel that into what one person thinks mm-hmm. you're probably better off and that's why you know but so that's why i i kind of i i find that scene a little kind of adorable in the sense that it, it, it's clumsy and it's, mm-hmm. it's awkward but it's also just kind of sweet this this film is like a a inverted funhouse mirror of <laughs> judy garland's own own condition of celebrity and that's what makes it even more poignant and tragic and heartbreaking in that, that, that those qualities are augmented by the, pre, the prior experience of what we know about this leading actress. And I feel like that is also what, 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 what elevates it as a classic in my mind, not only just for the conditions of, 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 of its production, but also because of its significance in how it relates to the historical um, uh, relevance of these characters and of these actors. How about incredible that Judy Garland is just in this movie to begin with? Yes. Like, could you imagine Robert Downey Jr. in a film where he's playing the opposite of someone who has a massive drug problem and that's like the crux of the story? That would could fuck if they me paid up. him a shit ton of money. <laughs> oh, maybe, Lord. but someone who actually yeah, like yeah. this is the, like Judy Garland was like the person who was in this, and they were struggling to get other people to play a the character of Norman and play to p- basically play her fo- the foil of her character, which in real life was just herself, which is a fucking mind. Fuck. It is. <laughs> it is. It's. 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 God, it's just so sad. Um, Star is born, and and, 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 that, and that whole scene of like <laughs> the, the the different like surgeons like saying it's like oh she her nose is is the problem her That's eyebrows some Twilight are... Zone shit by the that way that is some Twilight Zone shit and I was just she like... totally believes it too in the yeah. next scene where she's like well my nose is all bad <laughs> although I I gotta uh, admit and 
uh, at least Alex for sure, like guffawed at the wonderful reaction when Norman passes her by on uh, on the uh, on whatever the like, landing. Fuck you, or, Norman. But when yeah, when, he, when when she's like hi, and then he's like oh sorry, honey, I'm running late because he doesn't actually recognize. Well, her, and we which see, is understandable. It, it's understandable, but it also. I would say gives a much clearer view into actually what Norman was as a person other than what we've seen for the rest of the film. Yeah. Where he's he's interested in her you character. You would think that but someone... But he just thinks she's just a random floozy, to be right, honest with you. Right, and that's the thing is that you would think that from what we were introduced as the, the guy who was going in the club and saying, what about her? What about her? Whatever would just be, you know, like completely distracted by some random girl in makeup, whatever. But no, he he's in love with Esther. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I've 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 talked so much about this film already. Is like and just kind of like getting to my final score about it. Like I could honestly see, uh, upon return viewings, giving this a, a a five out of five. Like I could totally see that. But as of right now, I feel like I I have not been able to experience this film enough, and I want to experience this fi- film more to be able to truly like argue and assert why it deserves to be a five out of five. Because I feel like it, it does, it, it it has the, it absolutely has the capacity to fulfill the criteria for which I think a five out of five film should have, and that should be a life changing film. Which I feel like, upon watching this film more, it could be that for me. So at least initially, right now, I'm going to give it a four and a half out of five. I love this film. I cannot wait to watch this film again. And yeah, you you, you have to see it. This has got to be the highest combined score we've ever given a film. Yeah, quite some time. I want to. No, say. it just is it ever. I think the the only one that comes close is the Big Lebowski. I was gonna, but you gave it a four. Lower, yeah. yeah, that's right. Four you didn't give it a five. four and a half because so, you're a horrible person. Monster. <laughs> so it's still a really good movie. Being it's just very undude right now. <laughs> just kidding. Sorry. <laughs> I'm kidding. Yep. Go ahead, Nick. You have the floor. Well, so uh, if you couldn't tell by now, <laughs> uh, I was the one who picked this movie. We we kind of I kept saying for quite a while that we haven't done a musical yet, uh, and I love musicals. So if I love something and we haven't done it yet, then there's something wrong. <laughs> um, and when when I was going to choose uh, the musical we were going to do, I was between this and a movie I will not name, but will say is a much more conventional musical. And a musical that we mentioned earlier in the episode that there's a chance we're going to do another Correct. musical down the road with Sam and Correct. there's there's a a good chance it will be the one you are not going to name so yes no you, yes. you could find out what it is <laughs> quite soon no i was going to say the next musical we do will be that movie like <laughs> i'll say that much um but that musical is a much more like people break into song and sing their feelings and you know the songs are very original and whatever but this certainly defies what we expect from musicals. Like, um, even if it conforms to the genre, it does so in a vacuum. So, like, the songs we sing are so uh, independent from each other. You know, the the jazz club uh, scene of her singing The Man Got Away feels like it's from a completely different movie than the the scene in which she sings um, Go On and Put a Long Face uh, with the Children in the Rain. But it's all one movie because certainly that's quite literally in, on a meta level uh, supposed to be in a different movie. Um, so <laughs> I love this movie. Uh, I think it's pretty much one of the greatest movies I've ever seen. Naturally, I'll give it like two and a half out of five. No, I, I give it a five five out of five. It's it's a movie that 
every time I watch, I definitely get new things out of it. Not in like a weird, you know, uh, like like the same way I do like with like Primer or you know something where like it's so hard to understand. But what when a movie is this good, it is it. It is this multifaceted, so to speak. There, there's always you're never going to be, especially when it's a three-hour running time. There, there's always going to be things you didn't catch because you'll get so sucked into the moments that you'll forget that you're watching a quote-unquote movie that you won't, or at least I won't be able to process it in the way that I, I try to as a, a scholar of film, so to speak. Um, and that's the testament of a good movie is that I, I I keep putting that aside even though I want to like study it and whatnot. Um, but this movie is just fantastic. As a musical, it absolutely works. I love the song. As a love story, it's one of my all-time favorites because it makes me genuinely question what love means to two people and whether there is a right or wrong uh, way to pursue it. And on so many other minor levels, whether it's a, the satire of Hollywood or it's a um, just a, uh, a great rise and fall story, uh, everything about this movie somehow works in tandem with each other instead of uh, in spite of each other, um, that I just think this is one of the greatest films of all time. One of the, the great things about this, it, it makes me nostalgic for a time in which, A, I wasn't alive, but B, for a time when, like... That typifies this, our generation, though. True. But it makes me nostalgic for a time in which... When there wasn't Pokemon Go. <laughs> Pokemon goes. Oh, you've already dated this. Son of a a bitch. No, it makes me nostalgic for a time in which this was the big budget blockbuster. This is what studios gave millions upon millions of dollars to be made. And and I'm not even saying that as like some kind of Marvel like hater or something like that. But the idea that like this kind of movie won't get financed in the same way that it would Back in the 50s and the 40s when MGM Grand and whatnot were really putting money uh, down on musicals, like, it's like I get that things certainly have their place in certain eras and, you know, we may never capture that magic again, but as we can, we're all sitting down here uh, to talk about, and I think the two of you certainly aren't as high on musical as a genre as I am, but you can see the power of, like, when you have the the resources to put on a show it it can be as wonderful as this i will say uh even though this this was the the norm of, of the time and and a lot of money was given yeah. to to these kind of films and specifically this one um I do think it is really easy to pick out the best of the bunch and say, "Oh man, it would be nice to see more films like this," and people wouldn't even give this give this a chance now. Yeah. I mean, maybe twenty to thirty years from now, people will look at, "Oh, remember that like fifteen year stretch when every movie was a sequel, and there was this great sequel that came out." Like, I'm not even trying to say that that's the same kind of thing. I'm just saying, it, yes and no. I see what you're saying, but at the same time. I mean, we, we just talked about it earlier, like a film like La La Land, like it takes a filmmaker like Damien Chazelle to come in and actually make a like full on musical. And that right. might not even be that. No, right. and so, it might not be that. But we also, it, it's just a matter of the fact that I, I, I'm nostalgic for a time when, when my tastes align with the general <laughs> public. And, and um, I don't mean that in a snobbish way, because what I'm trying to say is this was just the mainstream entertainment, but this is the mainstream entertainment that I, I just absolutely eat see, up. See, this is why. Emily needed to watch this movie with us because, and hear you say that kind of word because 
Um, whenever she watches or whenever we watch a film of this era or a film from that describes this era where people are dancing in a classical sense, she's like, she always looks to me and says, I wish I lived in the time period when people knew how to dance and it wasn't just grinding and stroking. And she doesn't like twerking? No. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> What are you doing? Nick? I don't know, but I wish. We, do you want to do you want to describe what he's I, doing? I, it was it was a something. It was like a it's Elaine like a ch- on steroids from Seinfeld. It's like a it chicken great. having a stroke. Oh like. god! <laughs> yeah, it, but I, I, I stroking the chicken. I hear what you're saying, Nick, and and yeah. I honestly, for the most part, that agree. comment is supposed to be a, a like a comment about myself, not about like I wish like Marvel movies didn't exist. I say Marvel movies. Because that is like the de facto lead in what gets money these days. Sure, as fuck isn't DC movies, right? Um, but I just, getting money. Are you kidding me? I'm just, we're mean, not. We're not having this debate right now. No, it's not like DC's not putting money. I, into I mean, movies. If, we're, if we're thinking about the 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 the, <laughs> pro, the the prototypical like film of like this is your fault, Nick. Superhero films. We're thinking about Marvel films. God, I fucking more hate more people think about Marvel films. It's true, it's not like DC's like a bargain basement. I know, but like, especially now. It's the fact that we say Marvel films, then we know that's shorthand I say for the superhero. Fact, <laughs> Sorry. I said Marvel because of the fact that Marvel Cinematic Studios mean something. Yes. DC, do they have a studio? Don't. I genuinely don't know. I don't know. I know they have properties and I know they have film adaptations, but it's, I'm saying it's, like, it's, that's it's an a, entity of It's a studio that honestly has struggled so much anyway. and they seem to be more concerned with what their logo looks yeah. like than their films. All I was trying the to say is shit. for me to talk about... It used ab- to be really great. <laughs> it used to be, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> All I was saying is for me to talk about this movie from 1954, I'm not trying to be a snob and say, oh God, I, movies are bad today. They're, they're not. I just... Well. <laughs> Some of them are. Some of them are. Some of them, of them are, are great. Yeah. Um, but I, I guess I wish that in 2016 we still had the power to give a movie like A Star Is Born, uh, like all this money and you know, like, like we mentioned earlier, that this was the first Warner Brothers production that was in Cinemascope. Uh, it was directed by George Kakor, who uh, also has done quite a uh, a lot of other uh, movies as well, like My Fair Lady and a few other uh, some of the greatest. Uh, movie classics of all time that but it's just those kind of genres have fallen by the wayside um i I will say this that i would expect just the way that media and and the world has gone over time that we will see another generation of of films they will be different though so i will say this we're also in 2016 and we are seeing the popularity of something like hamilton which has yeah. kind of taken uh, the world by a storm, myself included. I absolutely love Hamilton. I have tickets to go see Hamilton. Obviously and, and different yes, than what I'm, I'm saying. I'm bragging about it. Um, <laughs> Fucking guy. But no, like, Unicorn. Like, <laughs> yeah. But like that is like, a, it could, you know, something like between what he, Lin-Manuel Miranda and Trey Parker and Matt Stone did with the Book of Mormon. Like we, we could be seeing a, a resurgence with musicals if we start getting more original voices in, in the Broadway faction. Maybe we'll start getting more. Well, if we st- have people going to the theater who are willing to receive this as well. Yeah. Because, you know, if, if if you were to put something like Hamilton in a theater and have that as a Broadway production like 25 years ago, probably wouldn't have gone over that great. No, and it quite but, literally like wouldn't even be this. But, yeah, gotcha. no, it, it, but it, yeah. it was a much different um, climate, audience that climate, was going yeah. then. For sure. So Yeah, I think the cultural climate's going to change a little bit. What? No. No, man. 
But yeah. Anyway, five it's, gonna, out of five. It's, it's going to have to. That is for for no for for theater to survive. No, it is. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh. But yeah, five out of five stars. This is one of my all-time favorite films. I will say that it's my favorite live action musical uh, because my favorite musical of all time is still Beauty and the Beast. But as far as people putting on a show uh, in front of our, our eyes, it's it's Judy Garland, James Mason, and beautiful Technicolor Cinemascope. There's a lot of things to like about this film. And um, yeah, we already heard from Caroline Decker, but if you out there want to give your feelings on this film or actually musicals in general, please yeah. send them on to filmtankshow at gmail.com. Uh, we'd like to hear your feelings on them. And um, I think musicals are, are something we're going to try to hit on a little more regularly than one in 72 down the road. So. We still have to do a Western. Yeah. I mean, I know we did Django, but yeah, like, really I was, I mean, it counts, but it doesn't count if you're like trying to represent Western. Yeah. So when you say Western, like would something like the good, the bad, and the ugly be something you're thinking count. of? Okay. Yeah. Because that would be the the obvious choice, I think. But it would be. But I have a non-obvious choice that I will. You have a non-obvious pr- choice. Propose I don't to you two. Well, it's an obvious <laughs> choice in the uh, shall we say in the world of westerns. It's actually not an obscure movie at all. But... Is John Wayne in it? Yes. Oh, so I was going to say that's a good start. It's not a non-obvious choice, <laughs> but it's it's not a. Uh... Hey, little lady. <laughs> It's a great use I've, of John Wayne. Have I, I've shown you the John Wayne clip. You have. Have I shown Toussaint the John Wayne clip? I don't know clip? if you showed Toussaint, but you've nah. shown me. I will show it to you. All right. It is great. <laughs> Sounds good. Listeners. Yeah, and I'll I'll post a link to it on okay. our Instagram page for yeah. our listeners. If or if you send it. me, I'll put it in our show notes. Boom. That's a good idea, if I remember. We'll put it somewhere. Facebook page, something. No, it's great. Oh, All yeah, right. no, I'm All thinking right, cool. about it. And I'm yeah, laughing. It's great. Um, but, yeah, Westerns. It's not that movie. I'll, I'll say that. I assume so. Somewhere down, I think that was the end for John Wayne. Like, it seemed like that was pretty much, there's nowhere to go from here. Yeah. So, Westerns, definitely a genre we're going to hit on. But musicals, something. I feel like that's the last one, though, isn't it? I mean, is there any other thing that we haven't really. Unless you get into micro genres. I'm just saying, as far as like all the. uh, We've done musicals, we've done avant garde, we've done drama, superhero, action. A lot of horror. horror. A lot of horror, actually. Which is funny because me and Alex don't really like horror. So it's funny. Yeah, I think we've done probably seven horror. I mean, I guess I do do like horror, but. Are we counting like the Saw episode where we did all the Saw? We are counting the Saw episode. All the Saw films? No, we're counting them. No, that that would be one. That's a singular thing. Okay. one. All right. We've We've done done that. It follows The Witch. The Babadook. Babadook. Scream. Oh, wow. We've done something else, too, that I can't think of. There's a couple other ones. Yeah, we've done quite a bit. The Vanishing, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Get the fuck out of here, too. our last major genre is Western. Yeah. I would say that. So, something to look forward to in the future, probably September, where everything else is getting thrown into. Oh. August maybe though too because the, the theater that has already been slow as could be is starting to slow down even more and it's yeah. uh, it's not not great. It's been a really bad year for him. some will hit on probably later in the year, but it's been a it's been an ugly year for. But you know what we're gonna see? What? What's that? A little film called Ghostbusters. We are, and you know what? In fact, it is. Wait. It is not the female Ghostbusters. Do I have to? Yeah, I was gonna say. Do I have to clarify? It is not which 2016 Ghostbusters. It is in fact called Ghostbusters. It's just a fucking and that's Ghostbusters. What we're gonna call it. Oh. It's a Ghostbusters movie. Yep. There will be people in here who are going to bust ghosts. That's right. That's it. Wasn't called exactly. Bro Busters. <laughs> Every week. 
Every fucking week. <laughs> every week with this dude. Anyway. <laughs> you love it. Every uh, week, man. 72 episodes. Oh. Same shit. Oh, Lord. Anyway. Keep you want me to going. quit? No. No. No, absolutely not. We're, it, it's just going to... Yep. So, Ghostbusters next week. Going to be a uh, an interesting episode. Definitely, I wouldn't say a movie that any of us has been really anticipating. But something we've talked about a lot off podcast throughout the last few months <laughs> sadly well it should not be this big of a talking it point. shouldn't be and but, that's but, that's the worst part and, about and it's something awful. we're definitely gonna hit on next week oh yeah is the, we're gonna finally get it all out yeah in the because open. there have been certain people on the internet who will not be remaining nameless they will get pointed out i was gonna say we're, we're gonna talk about some absolutely yep and because if you if you posted it, then uh, you ghosted it. I don't. <laughs> that was great. That was awful. A plus material. I hate myself. <laughs> no, it, it's it's going to be an interesting episode, and we're obviously going to talk about the movie, but a lot of other things surrounding Ghostbusters and uh, the horrible thing that is the internet. So something to talk about and to think about if you would like to send your thoughts on to filmtankshow at gmail.com. Obviously, we always welcome them. Yes, please yell at us uh, before we do our Ghostbusters episode. Yep. Or, or, or don't. Oh, if you do, you will be going on blast. Yeah. Let's do it. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram as we've been very active for us yeah. recently. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, you can find our episodes on filmtankshow.com or on iTunes or Stitcher as well. From Nick Cheney to Zonig and myself, Alex Diekman, thank you very much as always for listening to this episode of Film Tank, and we'll catch up with you next time. Oh,